1: Welcome
2: to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders.
3: Come and find yours. <laughs>
2: This is the Starship Sova. everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 437, I am your host Tony C. Smith, hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy, your keen ones out there may know, or may notice, it is a a day early, that's because we have some Business talk (laughs) at the back of the show. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show and I'll give you a little kind of, so you can get a heads up around what's going on. First up is, we're going to hit the main fiction and it is Blood Drive by Geoffrey Ford. Then we have Mr. JJ Campanella, the end of the month with his science news. So that is all coming in today's show, but right at the end as well, I've got some... Things that I, want, I need to get off my chest and, you know, just explain Starships Over and Tears to Terrify, the whole ship of District of Wonders going forward, like the business side of things. So, so I'll put it at the end. So if you're not really interested, you just want to kind of live in the science fiction world, which is where I do. Just, you know, I mean, you don't have to kind of listen to it. But if you want to kind of just interested, because there is some controversial topics that are kind of getting raised, that I'm kind of raising... And I just want, I love your, your feedback to be quite honest because you know what I mean. We'll be together ten years, Starships over. Do you know what I mean? It's we've been through all sorts of kind of ups and downs and all, all sorts. And this is a big one. Do you know what I mean? Oh, there's a there's a few big ones as well. So I'll I'll get into it if you would like to be kind enough to kind of hang around after the party's finished. <laughs> we can clean up. You know what I mean? Just chat and have a few volovans. So. Let's get into the main fiction straight up then. Like I say, it is Blood Drive by Jeffrey Ford. Total fan of Jeffrey Ford and Jeffrey Ford's writing, and Starship Troopers right throughout the history. Show one three eight, we had him on there. Two hundred ninety one, we had him on there, and three five two, we What Jeff on there as well? And just. Do you know what I mean? Some of the writing, man, he's coming out with, man. The Boatman's Holiday, just fantastic. The Night Whiskey,
3: oh.
2: And Jeff as well was also kind enough to give us the, the Empire of Ice Cream, which is a beautiful story. And that was in remember first ever Starships Over anthology. So we've kind of we've got a bit of history together, me and Jeff. Yeah, he's good lad. <laughs> and this story. It was originally published in *After 19 Stories of the Apocalypse and Dystopia, edited, edited by Alan Datlow and Terry Wineling. And just to mention as well, this story, Blood Drive, will be published in Jeffrey's up-and-coming short story collection, A Natural History of Hell. Man, there, that title, that's why he's a fantastic writer. Do you know what I mean? The Natural History of Hell. What a title, man. Just oozes that you want to buy it. It's coming out this month from Small Beer Press, so please make sure you get that book. Please, please, please. I'll give you, if anyone's not too familiar with Jeffrey Foer, I'll give you a little kind of heads up about Jeff. He's got collections of stories, The Fantasy Writers' Assistant, The Empire of Ice Cream, The Drowned Life and Crackport Palace. A new collection, which I've just mentioned there, Natural History of Hell, will, be, will appear in 2000, May 2016. Ford is the recipient of the World Fantasy Award, the Nebula, the Shirley Jackson Award, the Egg, Allen Poe, the Grand Prix, the His fiction has been translated over 20 languages. In addition to writing, he's been a professor of literature, and writing for almost 35 years. <laughs> Go on, Jeff. <laughs> Long time, lad. <laughs> and he's been a guest lecturer at the Clarion Writers' Workshop, the Stone Coast MFA. He lives in Ohio and currently's she teaches part time at Ohio University. Now, this story is narrated by Veronica Gugay, who is a narrator, author, and educator. And we've again, we've had Veronica on the show many times. Lovely voice. She's in love with a microphone for decades. She has voiced decades, decade, sorry, for decades, sorry, decades. <laughs> She has voiced spoiled supervillains, tempting demons, communist metahumans, space marines, anxious technomancers, the whole lot. She is the co-author of The Secret World Chronicles, a podcast novel series, and her other writings include Inner City, cyberpunk, psychological thrillers and zombies. When she isn't telling her favourite stories, Veronica... Masquerades as a mild manic academic whose speciali- specialties include time management, peer trading, and academic resources instruction. <laughs> Go on, Brian. Decades have been on that, mic last decades. <laughs> so, the Starship Sova is very proud to present
0: Blood Drive, written by Jeffrey Ford, narrated by Veronica Jaguer. For Christmas, our junior year of high school, all of our parents got us guns. That way you had a half a year to learn to shoot and get down all the safety garbage before you started senior year. Depending on how well off your parents were, that pretty much dictated the amount of firepower you had. Darcy Kranz's family lived in a trailer, and so she had a pea shooter, 22 double-eagle derringer. And Baron Haynes's father, who was in the security business and richer than God, got him a forty-four Magnum that was so heavy it made his nutty kid lean to the side when he wore the gun belt. I packed a pearl-handled thirty-eight revolver, Smith & Wesson, which had originally been my grandfather's. It was old as dirt, but all polished up, the way my father kept it, it was still a fine-looking gun. It was really my father's gun— and my mother told him not to give it to me. But he said, Look, when she goes to high school, she's got to carry. Everybody does in their senior year. Insane, said my mom. Come on, I said. Please. She drew close to me, right in my face, and said, If your father gives you that gun, he's got no protection making his deliveries. He drove a truck and delivered bakery goods to different diners and convenience stores in the area. Take it easy, said my dad. All the crooks are asleep when I go out for my runs. He motioned for me to come over to where he sat. He put the gun in my hand. I gripped the handle and felt the weight of it. Give me your best pose, he said. I turned profile, hung my head back my long chestnut hair reaching halfway to the floor, pulled up the sleeve of my T-shirt, made a muscle with my right arm, and pointed the gun at the ceiling with my left hand. He laughed till he couldn't catch his breath. And my mom said, Disgraceful! But she also laughed. I went to the firing range with my dad a lot the summer before senior year. He was a calm teacher, and never spoke much or got too mad. Afterward, he'd take me to this place and buy us ice cream. A lot of times it was Friday night, and I just wanted to get home so I could go hang with my friends. One night, I let him know we could skip the ice cream, and he seemed taken aback for a second, like I'd hurt his feelings. I'm sorry, he said, and tried to smile. I felt kind of bad and figured I could hug him or kiss him or ask him to tell me something. Tell me about a time when you shot the gun not on the practice range, I said as we drove along. He laughed. Not too many times, he said. The most interesting was from when I was a little older than you. It was night. We were in the basement of an abandoned factory over in the industrial quarter. I was with some buds, and we were partying, smoking up, and drinking straight cheap vodka. Anyway, we were wasted. This guy I really didn't like who hung out with us—Ramo was his name—he challenged me to a round of Russian roulette. "'Don't tell your mother this,' he said. "'You know I won't,' I said. Anyway, I left one bullet in the chamber— removed the others, and spun the cylinder. He went first. Nothing. I went, he went, etc., click, click, click. The gun came to me, and I was certain by then that the bullet was in my chamber. So you know what I did? You shot it into the ceiling? No. I turned the gun on Ramo and shot him in the face. After that, we all ran. We ran and never got caught. At the time, there was a gang going around at night shooting people and taking their wallets, and the cops put it off to them. None of my buds were going to snitch. Believe me, Ramo was no great loss to the world. The point of which is to say, it's a horrible thing to shoot someone. I see Ramo's expression right before the bullet drilled through it just about every night in my dreams. In other words, you better know what you're doing when you pull that trigger. Try to be responsible. I was sorry I asked. To tell you the truth, taking the gun to school at first was a big nuisance. The thing was heavy and you always had to keep an eye on it. The first couple of days were all right, because everyone was showing off their pieces at lunchtime. A lot of people complimented me on my gun. They liked the pearl handle and the shape of it. Of course, the kids with the new high-tech 9 millimeter jobs got the most attention, but if your piece was unique enough, it got you at least some cred. Jody Motes, pretty much an idiot with buck teeth and a fat ass, brought in a German Luger with a red swastika inlaid on the handle, and because of it started dating this really hot guy in our English class. Kids wore them on their hips, others, mostly guys, did the shoulder holster. A couple of the senior girls with big breasts went with this over-the-shoulder bandolier style, so their guns sat atop their left breast. Sweaty Mr. Gauche in second-period math said that look was very fashionable. I carried mine in my Spongebob lunchbox. I hated wearing it. The holster always hiked my skirt up in the back somehow. Everybody in the graduating class carried heat, except for Scott Wisner, the King of Vermont, as everybody called him. I forget why, because Vermont was totally far away. His parents had given him a stun gun instead of the real thing. Cody St. John... The captain of the football team said the stun gun was fag, and after that, Wisner turned into a weird loner who walked around, carrying a big jar with a floating mist inside. He asked all the better-looking girls if he could have their souls. I know he asked me. Creep. I heard he'd stun anyone who wanted it for ten dollars a pop. Whatever. The teachers in the classes for seniors all had tactical 12-gauge short-barrel shotguns. No shoulder stock, just a club grip with an image of the school's mascot, a cartoon rampaging Indian, stamped on it. Most of them were loaded with buckshot, but Mrs. Cloder, in human geography, who used her weapon as a pointer when at the board, was rumored to rock the breaching rounds, those big slugs cops used to blow doors off their hinges. Other teachers left the shotguns on their desks or lying across the eraser gutter at the bottom of the board. Mr. Warren, the vice principal, wore his in a holster across his back, and for an old fart was super quick in drawing it over his shoulder with one hand. At lunch, across the soccer field and back by the woods, where only the seniors were allowed to go, we sat out every nice day in the fall, smoking cigarettes and having gun-spinning competitions. You weren't allowed to shoot back there, so we left the safeties on. Bryce, a boy I knew since kindergarten, was good at it. He could flip his gun in the air backwards and have it land in the holster at his hip. Mackenzie Batkin wasn't paying attention and turned the safety off instead of on before she started spinning her antique Colt. The sound of the shot was so sudden we all jumped, and then silence, followed by the smell of gun smoke. The bullet went through her boot and took off the tip of her middle toe. Almost a whole minute passed before she screamed. The King of Vermont and Cody St. John both rushed to help her at the same time. They worked together to staunch the bleeding. I remember noticing the football lying on the ground next to the jar of souls, and I thought it would make a cool photo for the yearbook. She never told her parents, hiding the boots at the back of her closet. To this day, she's got half a middle toe on her right foot, but that's the least of her problems. After school that day, I walked home with my new friend, Constance, who only came to Bascom High in senior year. We crossed the soccer field, passed the fallen leaves stained red with Mackenzie's blood, and entered the woods. The wind blew and shook the empty branches of the trees. Constance suddenly stopped walking crouched, drew her Beretta Storm, and fired. By the time I could turn my head, the squirrel was falling back, headless, off a tree about thirty yards away. She had a cute haircut, short but with a lock that almost covered her right eye. Jeans and a green flannel shirt, a calm pretty face. When we were doing current events in fifth-period social studies, she'd argued with Mr. Hallibut about the cancellation of child labor laws. Me? I could never follow politics. It was too boring. But Constance seemed to really understand, and although on the TV news we all watched, they were convinced it was a good idea for kids twelve and older to now be eligible to be sent to work by their parents for extra income, she said it was wrong. "'Halibut laughed at her and said, "'This is Senator Meats we're talking about. "'He's a man of the people, the guy who gave you your guns.' "'Constance had more to say, "'but the teacher lifted his shotgun and turned to the board. "'The thing I couldn't get over "'is that she actually knew this shit better than Halibut. "'The thought of it, for some reason, made me blush.' By the time the first snow came in late November, the guns became mostly just a part of our wardrobes, and kids turned their attention back to their cell phones and iPods. The one shot fired in the school before Christmas vacation was when Mrs. Cloder dropped her gun in the bathroom stall and blew off the side of the toilet bowl. Water flooded out into the hallway. Other than that, the only time you noticed that people were packing was when they used their sidearm for comedy purposes. Like Bryce, during English, when the teacher was reading Pilgrim's Progress to us, took out his gun and stuck the end in his mouth as if he was so bored he was going to blow his own brains out. At least once a week, outside the cafeteria, on the days it was too cold to leave the school, there were quick-draw contests. Two kids would face off. There'd be a panel of judges, and Vice Principal Warren would set his cell phone to beep once. When they heard the beep, the pair drew, and whoever was faster won a coupon for a free 32-ounce soda at Babs, the local convenience store. One thing I did notice in that first half of the year. Usually when a person drew their gun, even in as a joke, they had a saying they always spoke. Each person had their own signature saying. When it came to these lines, it seemed that the ban on cursing could be ignored without any problem. Even the teachers got into it. Mr. Ghosh was partial to Eat hot lead, you little motherfuckers. The school nurse, Mrs. James, used See you in hell, asshole. Vice Principal Warren, who always kept his language in check, would draw, and while the gun was coming level with your head, say You're already dead. As for the kids, they all used lines they'd seen in recent movies. Cody St. John used, Suck on this bitches. Mackenzie, who by Christmas was known as Half Toe Batkin, concocted the line, Put up your feet. I tried to think of something to say, but it all seemed too corny and it took me too long to get the gun out of my lunchbox to really outdraw anyone else. Senior year rolled fast, and by winter break, I was wondering what I'd do after I graduated. Constance told me she was going to college to learn philosophy. Do they still teach that stuff? I asked. She smiled. Not so much anymore. We were sitting in my living room. My parents were away at my aunt's. The TV was on, the lights were out, and we were holding hands. We liked to just sit quietly with each other and talk. So I guess you'll be moving away after the summer, I said. She nodded. I thought I'd try to get a job at Walmart, I said. I heard they have benefits now. "'That's all you're going to do with your life,' asked Constance. "'For now,' I said. "'Well, then when I go away, you should come with me.' She put her arm behind my head and drew me gently to her. We just sat, holding each other for a long time while the snow came down outside. A few days after Christmas, I sat with my parents watching the evening news after dinner. Senator Meats was on talking about what he hoped to accomplish in the coming year. He was telling about how happy he was to work for minimum wage when he was eleven. This guy's got it down, said my father. I shouldn't have opened my mouth, but I said, Constance says he's a loser. Loser? my father said are you kidding who's this constance i don't want you hanging out with any socialists don't tell me she's one of those kids who refuses to carry a gun meets past the gun laws mandatory church on sundays for all citizens killed abortion and got us to stand up to the mexicans <laughs> he's definitely going to be the next president she's probably the best shot in the class i said realizing I'd already said too much. My father was suspicious, and he stirred in his easy chair, leaning forward. I met her, said my mother. She's a nice girl. I gave things a few seconds to settle down, and then announced I was going to take the dog for a walk. As I passed my mother, unnoticed by my dad, she grabbed my hand and gave it a quick squeeze. Back at school in January, there was a lot to do. I went to the senior class meetings, but didn't say anything. They decided for our act of humanity required of every senior class, we would have a blood drive. For the senior trip, we decided to keep it cheap, as pretty much everyone's parents were broke. A day trip to Bash Lake. Sounds stale, said Bryce but if we bring enough alcohol and weed, it'll be okay. Mrs. Cloder, our faculty advisor, aimed at him, said, Arrivederci, baby, and gave him two Saturday detentions. The other event that overshadowed all the others, though, was the upcoming prom. My mother helped me make my dress. She was awesome on the sewing machine. It was turquoise satin, short-sleeve, Mid-length. I told my parents I had no date, but was just going solo. Constance and I had made plans. We knew from all the weeks of mandatory Sunday Mass, the pastor actually spitting he was so worked up over what he called unnatural love that we couldn't go as a couple. She cared more than I did. I just tried to forget about it. When the good weather of spring hit, people got giddy and tense. There were accidents. In homeroom one morning, Darcy dropped her bag on her desk, and the Derringer inside went off and took out Ralph Babs' right eye. He lived, but when he came back to school, his head was kind of caved in, and he had a bad fake eye that looked like a kid drew it. It only stared straight ahead. Another was when Mr. Halibut got angry because everybody gotten in the habit of challenging his current events lectures after seeing Constance in action. He yelled for us all to shut up and accidentally squeezed off around. Luckily for us, the gun was pointed at the ceiling. Mr. Ghosh, though, who was sitting in the floor a room above, directly over Halibut, had to have Buckshot taken out of his ass. When he returned to school from a week off... He sweated more than ever. Mixed in with the usual spring fever, there was all kinds of drama over who was going to the prom with who. Fist fights, girl fights, plenty of drawn guns, but not for comedy. I noticed that the King of Vermont was getting wackier the more people refused to notice him. When I left my sixth-period class to use the bathroom, I saw him out on the soccer field from the upstairs hallway window. He turned the stun gun on himself and shot the two darts with wires into his own chest. It knocked him down fast, and he was twitching on the ground. I went and took a piss. When I passed the window again, he was gone. He'd started bringing alcohol to school, and at lunch, where again we were back by the woods hanging out, he'd drink a Red Bull and a half pint of vodka. Right around that time, I met Constance at the town library one night. I had nothing to do, but she had to write a paper. When I arrived, she put the paper away and was reading. I asked her what the book was. She told me, Plato. Good story? I asked. She explained it wasn't a novel, but a book about ideas. You see she said. There's this cave, and this guy gets chained up inside so that he can't turn around or move but only stare at the back wall. There's a fire in the cave behind him, and it casts his shadow on the wall he faces. That play of light and shadow is the sum total of his reality. I nodded and listened as long as I could. Constance was so wrapped up in explaining— She looked beautiful, but I didn't want to listen any more. I checked over my shoulder to see if anyone was around. When I saw we were alone, I quickly leaned forward and kissed her on the lips. She smiled and said, Let's get out of here. On a warm day in mid May, we had the blood drive. I got there early and gave blood. The nurses, who were really nice, told me to sit for a while and they gave me orange juice and cookies. I thought about becoming a nurse for maybe like five whole minutes. Other kids showed up and gave blood, and I stuck around to help sign them up. Cody came and watched, but wouldn't give. Fuck the dying, I heard him say. Nobody gets my blood but me. After that, a few other boys decided not to give either. Whatever. Then at lunch, the King of Vermont was drinking his Red Bulls and vodka, and I think because he'd given blood, he was really blasted. He went around threatening to stun people in their private parts. After lunch, in Mrs. Cloder's class, where we sat at long tables in a rectangle that formed in front of her desk, Wisner took the seat straight across from her. I was two seats down from him toward the windows. Class started, and the first thing Mrs. Cloder said before she even got out of her seat was to the king Get that foolish jar off the table. We all looked over. Wisner stared. The mist swirled inside the glass. He pushed his seat back and stood up, cradling the jar in one arm and drawing his stun gun. "'Sit down, Scotty,' she said, and leveled her riot gun at him. "'I could see her finger tightening on the trigger. "'A few seconds passed, and then one by one, "'all the kids drew their weapons, "'but nobody was sure whether to aim at Mrs. Cloder or the King, "'so about half did one and half the other. "'I never even opened my lunch box, afraid to make a sudden move.' ''Put down your gun and back slowly away from the table,'' said Mrs. Cloder. ''When you meet the devil, give him my regards,'' said Wisner. But as he pulled the trigger, Mrs. Cloder fired. The breaching slug blew a hole in the King of Vermont's chest, slamming him against the back wall in a cloud of blood. The jar shattered and glass flew.'' Mackenzie, who had been sitting next to Wisner, screamed as the shards dug into her face. I don't know if she shot or if the gun just went off, but her bullet hit Mrs. Cloder in the shoulder and spun her out of the chair onto the ground. She groaned and rolled back and forth. Meanwhile... "'Wisner's stun-gun darts had gone wild, struck Chucky Durr in the forehead, one over each eye, and in his electrified shaking, his gun went off and put a round right into Melanie Stort's Adam's apple. Blood poured out as she dropped her own gun and brought her hands to her gurgling neck. Melanie was Cody St. John's current hoe, as he called her, and he didn't think twice but fanned the hammer of his pistol—' putting three shots into Chucky, who went over on the floor like a bag of potatoes. Chucky's cousin, Maliba, shot Cody in the side of the head, and he went down screaming as smoke poured from the hole above his left ear. One of Cody's crew shot Maliba, and then I couldn't keep track anymore. Bullets whizzed by my head, blood was spurting everywhere. Kids were going down like pins at the bowling alley. Mrs. Cloder clawed her way back into her seat, lifted the gun, and aimed it. Whoever was left fired on her, and then she fired, another shotgun blast, like an explosion. When the ringing in my ears went away, the room was perfectly quiet but for the drip of blood and the ticking of the wall clock. Smoke hung in the air, and I thought of the King of Vermont's escaped souls. During the entire thing, I'd not moved a single finger. The cops were there before I could get myself out of the chair. They wrapped a blanket around me and led me down to the principal's office. I was in a daze for a while, but could feel them there moving around me, and could hear them talking. Then my mother was there, and the cop was handing me a cup of orange juice. They asked if they could talk to me, and my mother left it up to me. I told them everything, exactly how it went down. I started with the blood drive. They tested me for gunpowder to see if there was any on my hands. I told them my gun was back in the classroom in the lunchbox under the table, and it hadn't been fired since the summer, the last time I went to the range with my dad. It was... All over the news. I was all over the news. A full one-third of Bascom High's senior class was killed in the shootout. Senator Meats showed up at the school three days later and got his picture taken, handing me an award. I never really knew what it was for. Constance said of it, They give you a fucking award if you live through it, and laughed. In Meets' speech that day to the assembled community, he blamed the blood drive for the incident. He proclaimed Mrs. Cloder a hero and ended reminding everyone, If these kids were working, they'd have no time for this. The class trip was called off out of respect for the dead. Two weeks later, I went to the prom. It was to be held in the high school gymnasium. "'My dad drove me. "'When we pulled into the parking lot, it was empty. "'You must be early,' he said, "'and handed me the corsage I'd asked him to get. "'A white orchid. "'Thanks,' I said, and gave him a kiss on the cheek. "'As I opened the door to get out, he put his hand on my elbow. "'I turned, and he was holding the gun.' You'll need this, he said. I shook my head and told him, It's okay. He was momentarily taken aback. Then he tried to smile. I shut the door and he drove away. Constance was already there. In fact, she was the only one there. The gym was done up with glittery stars on the ceiling, a painted moon and clouds. There were streamers. Our voices echoed as we exchanged corsages, which had been our plan. The white orchid looked good on her black plunging neckline. She'd gotten me a corsage made of red roses, and they really stood out against the turquoise. In her purse, instead of the Beretta, she had a half pint of Captain Morgan. We sat on one of the bleachers and passed the bottle talking about the incidents of the past two weeks. I guess no one's coming, she said. No sooner were the words out of her mouth than the outside door creaked open and in walked Bryce carrying a case in one hand and dressed in a jacket and tie. We got up and went to see him. Constance passed him the Captain Morgan. He took a swig. I was afraid of this, he said. "'No one's coming?' I said. "'I guess some of the parents were scared there'd be another shootout. "'Probably the teachers, too. "'Mrs. Cloder's family insisted on an open casket. "'A third of them are dead, let's not forget, "'and the rest, after hearing Meats talk, "'are working the late shift at Walmart for minimum wage.' "'Geez,' said Constance. Just us, said Bryce. He went up on the stage, set his case down, and got behind the podium at the back. Watch this, he said, and a second later the lights went out. We all laughed. A dozen blue searchlights appeared, their beams moving randomly around the gym, washing over us and then rushing away to some dark corner. A small white spotlight came on above the mic that stood at the front of the stage. Bryce stepped up into the glow. He opened the case at his feet and took out a saxophone. I was looking forward to playing tonight, he said. We walked up to the edge of the stage, and I handed him the bottle. He took a swig, the sax now on a chain around his neck. Putting the bottle down at his feet, he said, Would you ladies care to dance? Play us something, we told him. He thought for a second and said, Strangers in the night. He played. We danced. And the blue lights in the dark were the sum total of our reality.
2: There you go. Big thank you to Jeff and Veronica. Don't forget. This week, I'll put a link on if we can kind of get it in there. Get a link on the Jeff's book, Blood Drive. And, like I said, Veronica, there's a link on there. Go and say hello to Veronica. Fantastic narration. Veronica, thank you so much. So, like I say, it is the end of the month, so it is our very own Mr. JJ Campanella. Jim, Squire.
3: Greetings and polyphonic libations, my vitreously leucocellular listeners. Welcome to this May 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this insignificantly noteworthy science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Since you guys, my beloved listeners, have been bugging me for months to go to a doctor for sleep apnea, I'm half tempted to tell you my adventures in the realms of sleep apnea diagnosis and treatment. Although it would take a really long time. Um. Maybe I'll do this in two parts. We'll we'll do diagnosis this month. Yeah, that's a good idea. I went to a pulmonary specialist a couple of months ago to be tested for sleep apnea. For first-time listeners, I have been accused by my lovely wife of ceasing to breathe while snoring very heavily. That is probably the most common accompaniment to sleep apnea. So after waiting two months to see a specialist, I guess he's very busy since he couldn't fit me in for quite a while, I finally sat down with this well-known doctor. After interviewing me on my sleeping habits, lack of daytime energy, and general exhaustion, the good doctor says, Yes, I am pretty sure that you have sleep apnea, but we must do a sleep study to be sure. And no, that is not at all what my doctor sounded like, but I thought I'd give him a classy German accent for entertainment purposes. Anyway... What the doctor said translated to, yeah, it sure sounds like you have sleep apnea, and that's good enough for me, but the insurance company won't pay one thin dime unless we prove it to them clinically. They then set me up with the apparatus needed to do the sleep study, or the polysomnogram, or PSG. The apparatus performs general monitoring of sleep and a variety of bodily functions during sleep, including breathing pattern, oxygen level in the blood heart rhythms and limb movement it consists of two breathing tubes stuck up your nose and these are attached to the brainwave
1: here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: ...monitor, which is literally glued to your forehead for the evening so it won't come off. An alarm goes off if the breathing tubes are dislodged from your nose, waking you up. An alarm goes off if the electrodes glued to your forehead are dislodged, waking you up. An alarm goes off if the whole thing is dislodged, waking you up. Ah, a truly restful experience for something that's supposed to be measuring your sleep. Even given the Torquemada level of torture that this device inflicted on me, I was able to sleep for three hours the evening that I slipped this little gem atop my noggin. Finally, when I awoke again at 1.45 a.m., there was no way on God's green earth I was getting back to sleep with that thing stuck to my head. Thinking I had to have the bloody device attached to me for at least six hours or it wouldn't validate the test, I spent the rest of the sleepless night catching up on my TV watching with The Flash and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. When, bleary-eyed, I returned the device the next morning, I would lightly joked with the nurse how uncomfortable the device was, and I wondered how many people ever complained about it. She looked at me blandly, no humor at all in her face or eyes, and told me that almost no one ever complained that it was uncomfortable. She then glared at me as if she had designed the apparatus herself and was personally insulted by my even intimating that it might have any level of discomfort. I slunk out of there and returned a week later to be told by my doctor that I had severe sleep apnea. Not as bad as some, as he said, but bad enough. Yippee-ki-yay. I asked him if I had slept enough with his torture device on my head, and he told me, oh yeah, plenty. I guess I could have taken it off after three hours of sleep, and actually gotten some real sleep after that. I just wish somebody had told me that. We'll continue this next month. Join us for part two, The Horrors of CPAP. So here's the first actual news of the night. Limb regeneration may soon be a reality in humans. As most of you know, there are some animals on the evolutionary tree that have the ability to replace legs and tails if they're cut off. They can regenerate them, much as the fictional Wolverine or Deadpool can in the Marvel comics and movie universe. In the real world, it seems that salamanders and zebrafish are especially good at doing this. They can repair injured hearts and spinal cords and even regrow lost limbs because they possess certain genes. And for a long time, geneticists believed it was just, well, the luck of the evolutionary draw for these animals and that they had genetic systems that those of us a bit higher up on the evolutionary scale just lack. As it happens, it was discovered several years back that there are indeed human counterparts to the regeneration genes in those animals. So the mystery deepened. If humans have tissue-regenerating genes too, then why are our tissue regeneration capabilities so limited? The answer, it turns out, may have less to do with the genes themselves than it has to do, well, how the genes are regulated, turned on and turned off. According to Dr. Keith Poss of Duke University, what we're missing are gene regulatory elements that can engage our neglected tissue regeneration machinery. Additionally, he says that these gene regulatory elements could be installed by means of genetic engineering. Posse's group just published their findings in April in the journal Nature in an article entitled, Modulation of Tissue Repair by Regeneration Enhancer Elements. Poss says that they first looked for genes that were strongly induced during fin and heart regeneration in zebrafish. This analysis suggested that a gene called leptin B was especially important in tissue regeneration. His group then scoured the surrounding area of the genome on the DNA for enhancer elements. Now, an enhancer element is a sequence that's sort of the genetic equivalent of an amplifier on a PA system. Posse figured that if the gene was found in both humans and zebrafish, then the fish must have the ability to turn up or amplify the expression of the gene, which, well, humans can't do. Ultimately, they were actually successful. Posse's group found a series of enhancer elements, which they called tissue regeneration enhancer elements, or TREEs, trees. These tree enhancer sequences appear to trigger gene expression, and they could also be engineered to modulate the regenerative potential of vertebrate organs. Posse says in the article, quote, simple enhancer effector transgenes employing leptin-B linked sequences upstream of a pro- or anti-regenerative factor controlled the efficacy of regeneration in zebrafish. This element could activate expression in injured neonatal mouse tissues and was divisible into tissue-specific modules sufficient for expression in regenerating zebrafish fins or hearts, In the process of analyzing the tree enhancer sequences, Posse discovered that the element could be separated into two distinct parts, one that activates genes in an injured heart, for example, and then next to it, another that activates genes in an injured fin in the fish. In a move that would have made Dr. Frankenstein blush, Posse then fused those two tree sequences to upregulate two regeneration genes in zebrafish that were not present previously. He attached them to the fibroblast growth factor and neuregulin 1 genes, thus creating the fish equivalent of wolverine, a transgenic zebrafish whose fins and heart had superior regenerative responses after injury. Finally, in true mad scientist fashion, Posse decided to try out his new magic tree sequences on a mammalian system in transgenic mice. Okay, he wasn't quite that mad. All he did was attach the tree enhancer to a gene called LAC-Z. LAC-Z produces blue color whenever it's turned on. Remarkably, the tree sequence, which was borrowed from the genome of zebrafish, was able to activate gene expression in injured paws and hearts of transgenic mice. No, it did not induce repair of those injuries yet. But it did turn on when the mice were injured. So we're halfway there. Pause said in an interview quote, we are just at the beginning of this work, but now we have an encouraging proof of concept that these elements possess all the sequences necessary to work with mammalian machinery after injury. Next story. The human genome is a strange place. In a recent piece of research that came out in March from Dr. Julia Wildschutz's lab in the journal The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, it was reported that more than 8% of the human genome comes from retroviruses that infected our ancestors' germ cells. While most of these ancient viruses can no longer replicate or infect others, Wildshut has now found one that actually may be functional. Just to put this in perspective, since many of you are thinking 8%, big deal, the amount of the human genome that actually codes for protein and is actual genes is about 5%. So there is more ancient viral DNA in our genome than actual coding sequence that makes us human. It makes you think about what actually makes a genome human, or palm tree, or a goody for that matter. At any rate, where do these things come from? When a retrovirus enters a cell it inserts a copy of its RNA genome which it converted into DNA into the host cell's DNA. On occasion, retroviruses infect cells contributing to the germline resulting in their transmission to offspring as what are called endogenous retroviruses or ERVs. Over the course of evolution, this has happened so many times that, well, more than 8% of the human genome originated from retroviruses. Wildschut and her group Analyzed more than 2,500 sequenced genomes from the Thousand Genomes Project and the Human Genome Diversity Project with an improved algorithm they developed to seek out and find these viral sequences. They confirmed the presence of 17 known ERVs and discovered 19 new ones. Most of the human ERVs have been traveling in the human genome for so long that they're filled with mutations and deletions. Or recombination events in one or more of their necessary elements. They can no longer express genes or copy themselves or move around or do really much of anything. And we're probably lucky about this. Walsh's team focused on one group of human ERVs introduced to the genome only about 2 million years ago. Because of their relatively young age, viral RNA, protein, and even non infectious retrovirus like particles have shown up in tumors and placentas over time. Among the 19 new HERVs of this class, her group identified three that were still flanked by what are called long-terminal repeats. These are special repeats at either end of the viral genome that allow it to become part of the human genome and move around and stick in one place or another. In other words, it gives it the ability to move. One of these viral sequences even carried all of the genes needed for a viral function and lacked mutations or substitutions in sequences that were absolutely needed. Wildschutz said, quote, This one looks like it's capable of making infectious viruses, which would be very exciting if true, as it would allow us to study a viral epidemic that took place a long time ago. This is a thrilling discovery. It will open up many doors of research. Frankly, it sounds like a scary scenario to me. Uh, one out of a bad science fiction horror novel, but that's just me. Uh, you have to wonder about scientists sometimes. They are very strange people. Next story. I've talked about fructose being a problem in the human diet previously. But a new report out of UCLA in the journal eBiomedicine entitled Systems Nutrigenomics." reveals brain-gene networks linking metabolic and brain disorders. suggests that fructose in your diet may be even worse for you than we thought previously. It seems that fructose can reprogram the epigenome of the brain, changing the expression of hundreds of genes, including genes that may lead to a greater predisposition toward metabolic diseases like diabetes and brain disorders like attention-deficit hyperactivity disorder. The article describes how fructose promotes these genetic changes, these epigenetic changes in the brain, which begin with DNA methylation changes in the BGN and FMOD genes. These are both genes that make extracellular matrix proteins. In addition, gene networks are altered that govern cell metabolism, cell communication, inflammation, and neuronal signaling. But all is not lost. Another component of your diet can reverse this horror. Dr. Jia Yang, the main author of the study, said, quote, We further demonstrate that an omega-3 fatty acid, DHA, reverses the genomic and network perturbations elicited by fructose, providing molecular support for nutritional interventions to counteract diet-induced metabolic and brain disorders, unquote to test the effects of fructose and DHA. Yang trained rats to escape from a maze and then randomly divided animals into three groups. For the next six weeks, one group of rats drank water with fructose that would be roughly equivalent to a person drinking about a liter of soda a day. The second group was given fructose water and a rich diet of DHA. And the third group received water without fructose and no DHA. After six weeks, the rats were put through the maze again. The animals that had been given only the fructose navigated the maze about half as fast as the rats that drank only water, indicating that the fructose diet had impaired their memory. The rats that had been given fructose and DHA, however, showed very similar results to those that only drank water. This finding strongly suggests that the DHA eliminated fructose's harmful effects. Other tests on the rats revealed more major differences. The rats receiving a high fructose diet had a much higher blood glucose level, triglyceride levels, and insulin levels on the other two groups. Those results are significant because in humans, elevated glucose and triglycerides and insulin are linked to diabetes and obesity and other diseases. So what's the implication of all this? Well, first, don't drink Coca-Cola unless it's the stuff from Mexico that's made of cane sugar and has no fructose. Second, well, your mom was right. Cod liver oil, which is a big source of DHA, is good for you. Horrible as it tastes. If you're going to drink mainstream soft drinks with lots of fructose, at least imbibe in fish oil as well. This whole study falls into a new category of research called nutrigenomics, in which scientists study the relationship between diet and our genome. Yang says, quote, Most people don't realize it, but food is like a pharmaceutical compound that affects the brain. Based on our data, I recommend avoiding sugary soft drinks and cutting down on desserts, and generally consuming less sugar and saturated fat. Unquote. Next story. This next story I read in the Journal of the Scientist. It harkens back to not just science in the 19th century when scientists used themselves or their relatives as guinea pigs. It also reminded me of the initial plot of many very bad horror movies where a new medical treatment is quite promising before it turns, well, dreadfully horrendous. Actually, lots of Doctor Who episodes start that way. So, last year, Dr. Elizabeth Parrish the CEO of Seattle-based biotech firm BioViva, hopped a plane to Columbia where she received multiple injections of two experimental gene therapies her company had developed. Notice, she went to Columbia because it's illegal to do something as stupid and dangerous as that in the United States. But I digress. One of her injections was intended to lengthen the caps of her chromosomes. These are called telomeres, and telomeres are there to protect the ends of chromosomes as cells replicate and chromosomes are copied. The other injection was aimed to increase muscle mass. Parrish told the journal, quote, The idea was that together these treatments would compress mortality by staving off the diseases of aging, enabling people to live healthier and longer, On the BioViva website on April 22nd, a few weeks back, BioViva reported the first results of Parrish's treatment. The telomeres of her leukocytes grew longer, from 6,700 base pairs in September 2015 to 7,300 base pairs in March 2016. So the question now is, what does that mean? Does it mean anything at all? The company crowed parish genetic response as success against human aging, having, quote, reversed 20 years of normal telomere shortening. My response is, yeah, right, sure, come back to me in 20 years and tell me this. Part of my problem with this is the idea that human aging is governed by shortening of telomeres. That's a great theory. It's very controversial. As we age, the ends of our chromosomes shorten more and more as our cells undergo replication. Some people say this causes aging. Other people say that it's just an effect of aging and is not a cause. If shortening telomeres are like gray hair, then, well, dyeing your hair is not going to make you live longer. Additionally, there are lots of animals whose telomeres shorten more slowly than they do in humans, including fruit flies but we outlive most of those animals by decades. This suggests that longer telomeres do not bring about longer lives. Parrish says, quote, The best scenario would be that we added 20 years of health onto the leukocytes, and my immune system might be more productive and catch more of the bad guys. But we have to wait and find out. The proof will be in the data. Unquote. Ah, yes. Spoken like a true mad scientist whose data has still not undergone peer review, even though she's told everybody about it. The other gene therapy that Parrish received, the gene encoding folostatin protein, well, that one is at least supported by human data. In, well, in the context of people with muscle disorders. There's no data demonstrating the effects of folistatin therapy on age-related muscle loss. Folastatin inhibits another protein called myostatin. Myostatin puts the brakes on muscle growth and therefore makes it attractive for muscular dystrophy treatment. Early clinical trials on six people with Becker's muscular dystrophy, for example, showed that four of them could actually walk longer distances after folastatin gene therapy in their muscles. Paris said in the article that she expects MRI data on her muscles' response to The treatment in about a month. She is now traveling the globe to find a regulatory partner willing to approve human clinical trials on a large scale. She says quote, When I started looking into this, it seemed like a crazy science. But it's a crazy science whose time had come, unquote. Frankly, I think she's just crazy. Ask doctor Jekyll if he thought self experimentation was a good idea in the long run. Anyway. Next quick story and this is hardly science. Oprah Winfrey will star in an upcoming HBO film based on Rebecca Skloot's book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. A variety reported on May 2nd that in addition to producing the film, Oprah will play the role of Deborah Lacks, daughter of Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were harvested and used without her permission and have played an essential role in medical research. Henrietta Lacks died way back in 1951, but her cancerous cells, dubbed HeLa cells, form the basis of an immortal cell line that have helped lay the foundation for a polio vaccine, as well as for some cancer and HIV research. The book and film tells the story of Lax and her family, whose contributions went unrecognized for decades, in part to protect privacy. Most scientists, including me, never even knew Henrietta Lax's name. For years, when I talked about HeLa cells in a biology class, I would refer to the donor as Helen Lane, as many textbooks suggested her name was. Next short story. How many bacterial species are there in the world? Any idea? If someone asked me, I would probably say, oh, millions for sure. And I'd be pretty confident in my answer. Well, I'm not even close. Heck, I'm not even close to what has already been cataloged. Researchers, led by Jane Lennon at Indiana University, have combined scaling laws with a model of biodiversity to produce a new estimate of the number of microbial species on Earth. And that seems to be somewhere between 10 to the 11th and 10 to the 12th species. Translated into the common speech, that is between 100 billion and 1 trillion. Given the current number of catalogued species, which actually stands at around 10 million, the researchers predict that around, well, 99.999% of microbial species are still left to discover. Their findings were published in the May issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Lennon said, quote, Estimating the number of species on Earth is among the great challenges in biology. Our study combines the largest available data sets with ecological models and new ecological rules for how biodiversity relates to abundance. This gave us a new and rigorous estimate for the number of microbial species on Earth, unquote. Lennon's study compiled data from 20,376 surveys of bacteria, archaeobacteria, and microscopic fungi, plus 14,862 sampling efforts on trees, birds, and mammals from 35,000 different locations in the world. After demonstrating that the abundance of the most dominant ocean bacterial species scales with the total number of individuals across 30 orders of magnitude, the researchers used these data to predict the existence of about 1 trillion microbial species worldwide. Alrighty then, last story of the night. And as in previous podcasts, we traditionally save the titillating story of the night for last. So what's the big headline? Well, males affect the physiology of females. Uh, what? Of course they do. Didn't anybody ever explain the birds and the bees to these researchers? Sorry, bear with me. Okay, what they actually meant was something a little bit different. A new study shows that the presence of males increases weight and stress in females, regardless of reproductive status. What? Okay, I'm not taking the blame for this. This is directed at my wife. You were a lot less stressed with just me around than before the kids, so let's not go slinging blame here. At any rate, Dr. Michael Garrett of the University of New South Wales says that, quote, having a mate comes with a host of biological benefits beyond having offspring, and yet there are some drawbacks. For a better understanding of the biological effects of sexual conflict and parental investment, we are teasing apart which effects are due to partner interactions and which are due to offspring production. Unquote. His group studies on this topic were published in March in the journal Science Reports. To test whether similar effects were seen in animals, Garrett paired female mice with vasectomized, castrated, or healthy males, or other females, and then measured their weight, stress levels, oxidative stress, and energy metabolism. Garrett said, quote, When you give a male a vasectomy, they don't produce any sperm, but they still produce high levels of androgen and produce seminal fluid. So you can look for differences between females who have mated with vasectomized males and those who have mated with intact males. And castrated males lose their interest in mating almost altogether, so you can be pretty sure these males aren't mating with the females, or at least mating at much lower levels. And so, see what might be resulting from these interactions. He found that simply being paired with a male, any male, increased the weight of the female, no matter whether that male was whole, vasectomized, or castrated. They also found that the females had increased levels of corticosterone, suggesting higher stress levels, with those housed with a castrated male showing the highest level of stress hormone. Wait, major stress with a eunuch around? I would think that would relax females. But, okay, what do I know? At any rate, there were no significant changes to oxidative stress in any of the pairings. Garrett says he was somewhat surprised by the results but said they fit well with previous studies done in fruit flies. Quote, Our results indicate that the different aspects of interactions with males have differential effects on females, which could be associated with the costs and benefits of mating. We are planning further experiments using this model to see how long these changes might persist and how they might affect reproduction later in life. Unquote. Yeah, right, as if wives don't have enough to blame husbands about. Do we really need stress and weight gain thrown in as well? Seriously, Garrett, give us a break here. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember to watch Oprah in her new Gila Cell movie. If you do a sleep study, remember that the torture does not need to be the whole night. Don't do genetic experiments on yourself, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. <sighs>
2: There you go, Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. So that is today's show. Apart from the kind of little business talk that I'm going to do there now, I hope you—you know—if you—if you just want science fiction and you're just kind of into that, you know what I mean. Thank you so much. You know, we can we can say goodbye now. If, on the other hand, you want to just kind of find out what. What's going on with the show, you know, I'll keep you kind of involved, you know, to, to the best extent I can, you know. So this is the kind of the what's going to happen. A few things, to be quite honest. One of the main ones is we're going to be moving servers. Now, I know that's kind of, you know, to the, some respect, this is not that big, but it, it, it is to me. Do you know what I mean? It's We're going to be kind of moving servers and we'll be needing a new, you know, like a web guru, if anyone's out there, in intern wants to kind of help out on the kind of the whole District of Wonders, just kind of, you know, putting up links and putting little bits of artwork on the site, you know what I mean? Just things like that, general things like that, nothing kind of massive and huge. But if you want to come on board and work with her on the District of Wonders, we, you know, we, we kind of need someone to kind of look after her in the kind of web development side of things. The next big thing, and this is where it kind of, Sometimes you, you probably or you might think, mm, it's a bit sticky wicket there. But we're also going to be moving from where we actually host the, the the actual MP3s. I've been since Starship's over, you know, and every podcast that's kind of been and gone and, and, and is there now. We've been with Libsyn. But I'm in the process there now of moving over to Acast. Now, Acast is a totally different scenario from, I guess in the way they're not, you know what I mean? They're still, can, you know, the podcast and hosting, but we can do a certain few things with Aircast that we couldn't do with, you know, and, when, you know, in, in reality, we're not that big. Yeah, Libsyn kind of would let you, you know, put adverts and do adverts and things like that, but you had to have a certain, you know, amount of download and you had to pay the, the premium, top whack, you know, s- monthly payment to kind of get into this program. So it was just, it's just pointless to be quite honest. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can pay the payment, but we haven't got nowhere near, you know what I mean? The, the, the download figures they're wanting. Yeah. That's the huge ones out there and good luck with them. So the way I got into AirCast was 2014, they came to me and said, you know, would you be interested in coming on our, you know, our network, our platform, you know, we'll offer a whole, you know, array of things. And actually they've got some great ideas. When I'm talking there now you know you can look on your phone and there'll be dynamic art to we'll be able to put in so we can- there's little things where you can put art and you can put video in and you can look and it it rules with the actual show so there's all it's a different platform we'll be using, but it's got you know a few potential you know ideas for for revenue and like I mentioned last week you know we it's always this ongoing battle to to keep things going, do you know what I mean? The three shows, four shows there now. And yes, I'd, you know, start these shows off so I'm just as to blame as anyone for kind of you know, things are tight. But things are tight, do you know what I mean? It's it, there's no getting away from it. I I mentioned last year, you know, we company went on strike for four months and things are like, certain things are maxed to the hilt, shall we say, in the Smith household. So there's that side of the coin. But there's also, you know, I've been doing this ten year. Do you know what I mean? It's just I'd like to actually, my, my ambition is to kind of make a living from Starship over You know, it's pretty hard though. we <laughs> just a little kind of sure. But you know what I mean? Just to get some sort of kind of revenue back would be fantastic. Do you know what I mean? 10 years of doing this for, you know, for for the pleasure, I guess. You know what I mean? Because I, like I say, it keeps me sane, to be quite honest. You know, it's one of those, It's 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 a kind of, crux for us that I kind of needed in my life you know to kind of talk to us and get feedback and put out this kind of shows and stuff so ACAST has these kind of certain functions the main two is well it's three really is ad supported so if we go down this way we will be putting ads in which for Starship over is nothing new you know a couple of years ago a few years ago we ran audible ads last year we had you know octagon technology on there so you know that's the kind of case the other shows you know that's a bit new ads are just a, a, an everyday part of it but what we also be able to do is put dynamic ads in and that's like right back to show one so we'll be kind of putting ads in you know the, the way their system work is you can tag a certain area beginning and end and maybe in the middle and then you can put ads in do you know what I mean that you can kind of insert ads as well so yes we'll be kind of added up to the hilt for one for a better description. And we've also got which is a kind of I guess one of the, the, the main kind of ooh, you know areas is we can make only the first fifty shows free. So the way they do it is each week there's a show goes off. So you're talking about like you get there's a, a year's worth of kind of Starships over shows or Tales to Terrify shows. You get like a year free. So if you subscribe or you come in within that year you can get the last year free. Anything over that, you know what I mean? Like say two year ago, you'd have to pay like a kind of monthly subscription. So there's that option as well. And I know that would kind of, you know, for some people that would kind of rub up the wrong way. But we got to, you know what I mean? I want to kind of this wants to kind of be a profitable thing. That's what I would like. Do you know what I mean? It's it. You cannot sit in this kind of little bubble of of ten year ago. You know everything's free. It's it it it's not like that. You know, and yes, we get stories. You know, I'm in this kind of dilemma. We get stories for free, but to get the money to pay the stories, I've got to make the money. Do you know what I mean? So it's a kind of it's a hard thing to to do. And I guess some writers will think, well, eh, I give you my story, and now your chart, you've made some money off it. And if there is anybody out there, do you know what I mean? Anybody, even just like listeners, that you know. Don't agree with that, I'd love to hear, you know, get in touch with us. Like you say, starships over at gmail.com. Hopefully, you know, you can understand where I'm going for. I want to take it so we can kind of make a decent bit of money. You know, I'm trying my best on the kind of the amount of kind of downloads we get to do that, to kind of put in place where we do pay writers. Do you know what I mean? But I can only do that in certain ways. Do you know what I mean? There is no sugar daddy there that's gonna you know pay the, the the huge lump sum that i need to you know you work it out you know there's three shows and each show is running at least a story you know a week you know you pay the, the going rate you're talking it works out silly figures do you know what i mean for a year's kind of pay for three shows you know it's do you what do you do so those are the, the kind of options you know you kind of it's a strange one, and I, and I guess that might upset someone, because right throughout, I've been kind of saying, Starship's over, is always free, and in a way, it is, but in another way, it won't be, do you know what I mean? And I've had a little chat with, you know, Jeremy, and Jeremy's a little bit kind of, you know, Jeremy will, you know, hopefully come on board, but it's a, it's a difficult, and I, I, you know, it is a difficult situation to be, you know, I, I don't want to put anybody in a difficult situation, a, di- a difficult place, but... These are the things that kind of, to get to where we want to be, do you know what I mean? These are, you know, difficult questions and different, difficult subjects that we are crossing now, do you know what I mean? 10 years in, and I just kind of just keep giving it all, do you know what I mean? And just not trying to help other people out, do you know what I mean? I do in a little bit, in my little way at the moment, but it could be, you know, a lot better. Uh, but I've got to, you know what I mean? I've got to make the money first. I've got to pay off the in debt first, but I've got to make the money first, do you know what I mean? So, I don't, if anyone's just kind of sitting on the high clouds, and oh that's not right, you should be giving it away for free. I hope there's no one like that, do you know what I mean? Yeah, there might be a few issues with the kind of back issues, you know, which I can totally understand. But how do I, you know, how do I move it forward to get more? Do you know what I mean? We've done the, the Patreon, and that's kind of stalled, you know what I mean? And it, it what do you do? Do you know what I mean? It's I'm just trying kind of every way I know how. And that's how, I've always done it that way. Do you know what I mean? i have just... Any way how to kind of make some money for me, make some money for other people. Do you know? And this is another, you know, another avenue, another stream to kind of, you know, quiver to the bow, so to speak. So I would love to hear from you. Do you know what I mean? Tell us what you think. You know, if there's one aspect of that, you know what I mean? Like you say, we will have... You know, ads possibly on the show right throughout, you know, two or three, maybe. You know, what's the difference from picking up a a magazine with ads in to kind of listen to the shows? Yeah, we, we, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's it's, It gets, gets annoying sometimes, you know what I mean? But it's one of those things. What do you think about, you know, the old archive shows being, you know, kind of under a like a, a walled garden, so to speak, you know, it, that's another kind of area. I certainly don't want to upset people, you know what I mean, and kind of have everyone kind of going away totally upset with these ideas, but these ideas are there, do you know what I mean, and this is the way everything's going, do you know what I mean? So I don't want to kind of just be this, never achieved its its greatness, you know what I mean? And I do think Starship sova Tales to Terrify, and. Farfetch fresh Fables are great, you know, brilliant shows. You know, when I listen to other shows, you know, kind of in the same genre. We're there just at the top, just with them. So, you know, we, and we're still going after this long. So do let us know what you think, do you know what I mean? If, if you even want to kind of have a chat with us, do you know what I mean? That's not a problem. I'll certainly kind of have a chat. If you're a writer and you've had a story in with when you've just found this out, Drop us an email if you're not happy with that kind of setup. You know, I'll take this, your story off. That's not a problem. Do you know what I mean? I've done that before. I've, like you say, I say, I took Ted Chang a while ago, six months ago, asked us to kind of just take down his, his you know, the merchant the Alchemist skate. And it wasn't because anything we'd done. He just says, it, you know, he, he's he's given it away for free for for that long. He wants now to kind of hopefully, you know, reap some benefit from it, which is. Totally acceptable, totally fine. So, you know, there is this if, if people come to us and say, I, I just take my story down to one, that's not a problem. Do you know what I mean? We'll, we'll do it. And if it all, you know, blows up in my face, you know, then we can kind of, I'll change it again. You know what I mean? Do we, we started as a fact show. Do you know what I mean? Maybe 10 years, it's time to drop the stories and, you know, and make it more of a kind of a factual science fiction show again. And, See how that goes. You know I'm open to any kind of possibility long as the show keeps going. So let us know what you think. Starships over at gmail.com or you can find us anywhere on the on the kind of the internets. Until next week, just like say good night from me
3: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment tune in next week for the next exciting installment of
1: even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things